St. Louis has always been a city of innovation and industry. Home to beer barons, industrialists, and inventors, it's a place where fortunes were made and empires rose and fell. One such empire was built by a man named Jordan Lambert, a Virginia man who came to St. Louis in 1873. He was a chemist and a pharmacist by trade, and he patented antiseptic that he called Listerine. It went on to become the backbone of the Lambert Pharmacal Company and turned several generations of the family into millionaires. Ironically, Lambert died of an infection in 1889. His wife, Lily, died of pneumonia six months later when their youngest son, John, was only six months old. One of their sons, Albert Bond Lambert, became an aviation pioneer and he financed Charles Lindbergh's flight to Paris. He had been born in 1875 and took his first hot air balloon ride in 1908. He became obsessed with flying and became the first St. Louisan to be licensed as an airplane pilot in 1911. Eventually, he helped create the St. Louis Municipal Airport, which was later named Lambert Field in his honor. Another son, Gerard, continued the growth of the family company. He also became president of Gillette. He turned Listerine into a product that would be found in almost every home in the country. The effect that the Lambert family had on American society cannot be underestimated. Well, at least for the most part. You see, not all of them achieved aviation greatness or changed the lives of Americans for the better. The oldest son, Jordan Wheat Lambert, was born in 1872 and, like Billy Lemp, served as the vice president of his family's company while adding little to the actual running of the operation. Instead, he was known for owning horse racing tracks and winning trophies as an expert billiards player. And then there was also his mysterious suicide in 1917. But the thing that put Jordan and his first wife, Helen, on the front pages of St. Louis newspapers was their ardent embrace of the spiritualist movement. Their belief in the possibility of communication with the dead was so strong in the early 20th century that they even hired a psychic medium as a caregiver for their son. According to some sources, it was the same medium who was responsible for the end of their marriage. As noted in the earlier episode on the Lemp family, F. Scott Fitzgerald once wrote, Let me tell you about the very rich. They are different from you and me. He wasn't writing about the Lemp family or Jordan Helen Lambert, but he certainly could have been. Welcome to the latest episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, our second season explores the history, mystery, and hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri, the most haunted city along the Mississippi River. This is the first of two episodes about the Lambert family of St. Louis, perhaps the most public and undoubtedly the wealthiest spiritualists in the city. Although overshadowed by the unlucky Limp family, they were nearly as wealthy and just as controversial in St. Louis in the early 1900s. Their story, however, has never really been told. So we hope you enjoy this look into the strange, astonishing, and ultimately tragic lives of the city's richest dabblers into the occult. Jordan Lambert, billiard player, millionaire playboy, and St. Louis bon vivant, married Helen Smith in 1897. At the time of their marriage, Jordan had not yet taken his position with the family company. He was kept too busy playing billiards, a game at which he excelled. He was the donor of the $1,000 Lambert Trophy, which was awarded to the three-cushion champion of the world. He was a member of the Missouri Athletic Club, the St. Louis Country Club, and the New York Country Club. By getting married and becoming vice president at Lambert Pharmacal in 1899, Jordan was finally starting to take his life seriously. He'd been born into wealth and privilege on April 12, 1872. He attended Smith's Academy in St. Louis and St. John's Academy in Salina, Kansas, and little had ever been asked of him, so he had done little in return for the life that he had. When he married Helen, though, it was time to settle down. The couple would have two children together, Jordan Jr., who would grow up to be simply known as Junior, and Baron. 
They live the ordinary life of the wealthy for the first several years of their marriage. The sports pages of the newspapers often kept track of the various billiards tournaments in which Jordan played. There were stories of horse racing and real estate purchases, including a few articles about his plans to build an elevated track system, like the one in Chicago for St. Louis. Those plans were eventually scrapped. The newspaper society pages regaled the ladies with stories of afternoon teas that were held at the Lambert's luxurious home at the Westminster Apartments on McPherson Avenue, and what dresses she wore to which formal affairs. There were articles about the births of their children and about an incident when a $3,000 piece of jewelry vanished from their home. The police were called, and when an officer suggested that perhaps Junior had swallowed it, that was the headline for the article in the next day's paper. Wasn't that delightful? The rich were just like the rest of us, readers laughed. It turned out the piece of jewelry had merely been dropped in the closet. It was never lost at all. And then around 1908, the newspaper stories about the Lamberts began to be about something else altogether, ghosts, or rather more specifically about their communications with them. Strange things were happening in the Lambert home and all of them seemed to revolve around a young man named Will Hannigan. He had originally been hired to serve as a caretaker for the Lambert's son, Junior, but he soon found himself in the newspaper being presented as an accomplished spiritualist medium. But was he really? Well, there were many at the time who were skeptical about the claims being made by Helen Lambert concerning the young man's ability, but they were convincing enough to get the attention of the American Society for Psychical Research, who came to St. Louis to study him. Helen's mother would later say that she believed Hannigan had a strange influence over the family and caused the Lamberts to separate. Was this because of his psychic abilities or something else? Well, we may never know the answer to that, but Mrs. Smith did say that Hannigan seemed to have some sort of hypnotic effect on Helen. What we do know is that Hannigan was a trained nurse, hired by the Lamberts to be a caretaker for Junior when he was a young child. There was never any discussion about his psychic abilities. Apparently, they manifested themselves by surprise one stormy night when Hannigan was seated in Jordan's office. He placed his hands on a table and it recoiled away from him, even though he'd barely touched it. Jordan was startled by this, but assumed there had to be some sort of explanation. No one suspected, at that point anyway, that anything out of the ordinary was taking place. A short time later, Hannigan was present during a seance at the Lambert home. Both Helen and Jordan had expressed an interest in spiritualism. It was enjoying a revival in St. Louis at the time and many society families enjoyed getting together with friends for seances, as well as talking board and table tipping sessions. Elsa Limp of the esteemed Brewing family was an avid spiritualist and a close friend of Helen Lambert. It was not unusual for acquaintances to visit and for the talking board to come out. But what happened that night was certainly unusual and it was the first of a series of events that would put the Lamberts and Will Hannigan in the national spotlight. It eventually proved to be more than any of them could handle. The group of friends were sitting around a table in the parlor, attempting to conjure up the spirits through automatic writing. This was a system that was popular during the spiritualist era and consisted of having one person sit with some blank papers, pencil in hand. Once the spirits took hold of them, they would unconsciously write out messages from the beyond. Helen invited Hannigan to sit in with them. After a half hour or so of waiting for something to happen, nothing did, Hannigan left the table and sat down in a chair in the corner. Suddenly, the table shifted by itself, left its place, and dragged itself across the floor, bringing the others with it. It scooted across the room and it stopped right in front of where Hannigan was sitting. He reached out, took the pencil in hand, and began to write messages that he claimed were coming into his head. The Lamberts and their friends were astounded, and soon word spread all over St. Louis about the miraculous feats that were occurring at the Westminster Apartments. By the fall of 1908, Hannigan would be on the front pages of local newspapers and would become the subject of experiments by Professor James Hyslop, Secretary of the American Society of Psychical Research, the most respected paranormal research organization in the country. Within days after the party, Hannigan began manifesting what mediums called a spirit guide. Now, this was a ghost that communicated directly with the medium and relayed messages from the other side. In Hannigan's case, his spirit guy was an Englishman named Joe Wentworth. He had allegedly died 200 years before and apparently was a pirate while on the earthly plane. 
Hannigan repeated many messages from Jill Wentworth over the next several months, most of them for Helen, usually telling her how best to care for her health, insisting that she not drink or smoke, as well as many other personal suggestions. But this was not what convinced the Lamberts that Hannigan was truly in touch with the other side. It was the message about the burglar. You see, one evening, Helen was conducting a test in automatic writing with Hannigan, a friend that was identified as Miss Howard, and Lily Hannigan, Will's sister, who was a stenographer at Lambert Pharmacal. The spirit that claimed to be Joe Wentworth was communicating with them. Helen later told a newspaper reporter, quote, suddenly all of us were jerked from our seats and led by some invisible force into my son's playroom where he was sleeping. When they returned to the table, they turned out the lights and Miss Howard and Lily, guided by the spirits, wrote rapidly, must watch Mrs. Lambert and Junior. Moments later, Helen and Hannigan were pulled from their seats and rushed into the bedroom, as Helen said, so fast that we had no control over our feet. They were led to an open closet and made to search every inch of it. Then the unseen force hurried them to the front door and made them try the bolt. It was unlocked. Helen was told to lock it. They returned to the parlor and Hannigan was seized with the need to write. He scrawled out a series of messages on the paper, which read, The man, the man, he was in the hall and he will come back again. He was thinking of hiding in Mrs. Lambert's closet. He thinks she has jewelry there. You must watch. Don't go to bed. He will be back. Well, a moment later, they heard the main door close downstairs. Helen whispered that she would call the police, but Hannigan's pencil wrote another message. If the man came back, the police would never arrive in time, it said. Hannigan was supposed to remain on watch, the message told them, and if the man returned, he was supposed to shoot him. Well, as you can imagine, everyone's a little alarmed by this. Miss Howard and Lily Hannigan went to bed, but Helen knew there was no way she could sleep. She and Will checked the locks in the windows and turned out the lights except for the one in the bathroom. Helen gave the young man her revolver to hold as they maintained their watch on the house. They sat in the dark for a long time before Hannigan suddenly heard a voice from the air saying, Look out! Look out! They looked down the stairs and saw that the bathroom door had been closed. A moment later, the door opened wide, spilling a stream of light out into the hallway, and then it closed again. Hannigan said that something told him to go down to the kitchen, but Helen refused to let him go until nearly an hour had passed. When they went downstairs, they found the bathroom empty. In the kitchen, they found the window open, which they had closed earlier that night, and they found muddy footprints on the steps and on the landing at the front door. Had someone else been in the house? Well, it certainly looked that way. The next day, they had a seance, and the spirit of Joe Whitworth told Helen, through Hannigan, of course, that a man had opened the window but had not entered the kitchen. The spirit had tried to get Hannigan to confront the man in the kitchen, but Helen had restrained him. So, Joe Wentworth, the ghost, had opened and closed the bathroom door to frighten the man away. The burglar had not wanted jewelry, the spirit said ominously. He'd also wanted to kidnap Helen and Junior. He might have succeeded if not for the help of the ghost and, of course, Will Hannigan. Well, Hannigan had now made himself indispensable to the family. Helen believed in his powers and Jordan was grateful for whatever he'd done on the night of the alleged attempted burglary, whether there was a ghost involved or not. Well, Hannigan soon became the centerpiece of the almost nightly seances and parties at their home. He began to produce more messages from his spirit guide, Joe Wentworth, and he performed feats of psychic powers that, if legitimate, were certainly astounding. One of the events that intrigued Jordan the most was the impossible appearance of two white roses during a seance at their home. Jordan recounted the incident for a reporter from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, ensuring him first that Hannigan had never trained to be a medium. He had read no books on paranormal happenings and had never expressed an interest in spiritualism before coming to work for the Lamberts, first as an office clerk, then as a nurse and caretaker for Junior. He was, at this point at least, convinced that no trickery was involved with any of the feats that Hannigan performed, especially the one that caused the roses to appear. You see, Jordan and Helen had a friend, R.H. Dreyer, who had moved to San Diego after the death of his wife. One night, Jordan asked Hannigan to try and communicate with Dreyer's late wife. Joe Wentworth responded that the lights needed to be turned out in the room and left that way for several minutes. The spirit guide then instructed them to turn the lights on again. 
When Jordan turned on the switch, he saw that two beautiful white roses were on the table. Jordan told the reporter there had not been a flower in the house when the lights were turned down. They could not identify the roses as any that were grown in St. Louis, and besides that, it had been a cold spring, and only crocuses and tulips were then in bloom. Jordan took the roses to a florist, and he said they were remarkable for their color, and he had never seen anything like them before. And the strange events continued to happen. Eventually, Helen compiled all of them into a report and sent them to James Hyslop for further review. Hannigan often found things without ever looking for them that Junior had misplaced. One day, the boy had lost a ball. When he asked Hannigan where it might be, it inexplicably appeared in his pocket. During seances, it was said that Hannigan's arms would get longer, stretching to impossible lengths. According to one report, an arm stretched an unbelievable 20 inches beyond its normal length. At another event, a spirit named Norman that Hannigan conjured up tried to lift Helen out of her chair and into the air. Helen said that the ghost tried for 10 minutes before finally giving up. After receiving the reports from Helen, Professor Hyslop traveled to St. Louis in the fall of 1908 and sat down with them for his own interviews and seance. When it was over, he referred to Hannigan as a supernormal man. What seemed to be an endorsement from the professor and spirit phenomena lecturer set off a new round of publicity for Hannigan in St. Louis. And that's when things really started to get strange, or stranger, I guess. On October 22nd, 1908, Helen Lambert agreed to allow Hannigan to sit down with a reporter from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch for his first interview. By then, an article by Hyslop had appeared in the Journal for the Society of Psychical Research, and people all over St. Louis were talking about the reclusive young man. It was a weird interview, and it was obvious that the reporter was unconvinced of his psychic powers and, frankly, just didn't like him. He made sure to describe his arrival in the Lambert's living room as coming in as diffidently as a debutante. He went on to say that Hannigan was a moon-faced young man, short, stout, and weighs 200 pounds. The headline, headline now, made sure to add that he was effeminate in his mannerisms. After being introduced to the reporter, Hannigan picked up a book and began chewing on the corner of it. He looked at the reporter in a, quote, dubious way before he spoke to them. He said, I have not been seeking notoriety in any way, and I am sorry that this publicity has come about. As for myself, I have not much to say. Professor Hyslop seems to have said it all. Hannigan then produced a copy of the Psychical Society's report and read aloud his own biography, noting that he had been born and raised in North St. Louis near the water tower and had lived there all his life. He claimed to know nothing about anything in the, quote, psychic way and knew no more than the reporter did about how they occurred. He was asked how he managed to perform the things that were attributed to him, and his reply was terse. I know nothing about what I do or how I do it. When I write, my hand is controlled and the pencil glides over the paper, telling things I know nothing about at such a speed that I could not do it if I tried. The reporter asked if he knew how the roses had appeared on the table during the seance to try and reach Dreyer's wife, and Hannigan answered, of course not. I do not know anything about the roses or what I wrote. I don't know anything about these things and what happens. Hannigan also knew nothing about having any sort of abilities as a child, knew nothing about psychic hunches, spiritualism, the spirit world, or really anything else the reporter asked him about. I don't pretend to know anything, Hannigan said, and the reporter added that he smiled, showing a set of teeth like those of a girl. His round, rosy face beamed with merriment as he told that he did not know what he was doing when he wrote letters and laid white roses on the table. As Hannigan scampered out of the room, Helen must have felt the need to apologize or at least make excuses for his immature behavior. She explained to the reporter that he was a mere boy and entirely unsophisticated. He does not smoke or drink, she said, and he's never had a love affair. Really, he's an extraordinary young fellow. His family has lived in one parish in St. Louis all his life. His mother, who died three years ago, was a superior woman. He's the baby of the family. That's all I know about him. The reporter was not impressed. In the closing piece of the article, he noted that Hannigan was said to have graduated from St. John's Hospital Training School. At the school, it was said that he worked in the hospital as a nurse for five years before graduation, but that five years would have put things before the school was even established, which seemed, well, rather odd. The unnamed reporter was the first to start asking questions about Will Hannigan and his marvelous feats of psychic ability, he would not be the last. Before those questions started to appear in the newspapers, though, something even stranger happened. Will Hannigan went missing. 
Obviously, this is not the end of the Lambert story, and we'll return to it in the next episode of the podcast when things will get, if you can believe it, even weirder, leading to divorce, death, and Jordan Lambert's baffling suicide. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words? I've been talking about it for a while. I'm gonna I mean, since before I think we started this. When I can't sleep, I'm gonna text you because I'm gonna be up all night freaking out about these ghost kids. Welcome to American Hauntings Podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and all things paranormal. You are listening to episode twenty-five, which is the twelfth episode of season two, which delves into the hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. I bet all of these people were wondering if we were ever coming back from vacation. Yeah, lots of people were asking me, uh, <laughs> yeah. what, what happened? I know, hey, uh, waiting for the new episode. Well, it's coming, so, you but, you know, off. we uh, we had some vacation time in there after the conference, so, but we're back. So, this, back with a brand new episode, and just new episodes from here on out until we're Finished with St. Louis. Which who knows? Which I don't know be. when that'll be, but you know, I didn't know this was going to be a two-parter, but it just turned out to be that way. Yeah, I'm so. suspicious, but um, I'm, you know, two, I think it'll be two parts, but I never really know. <laughs> no, you, no, so. I'm, I'm, well, I'm mostly positive it's two parts, so. <laughs> yeah, and you know, the vacation was uh, definitely much needed, but we, it's not like we were not doing any work, still putting well, out right. content, still doing a lot of fun stuff, and uh, yeah. Yeah, that it was a lot of fun, so we... Um, 
we're glad to be back up and running again and getting ready for the fall. I mean, because that's when things are going to get busy. I mean, we're right. going to have plenty of podcast episodes. But we've got lots and lots of other things going on in the fall because, you know, fall is the only time when there's ghost stuff. Yeah. You know, not all year round like we already do. And I think ghosts yeah. only come out <laughs> yeah, actually just in October. Yeah. So, yeah, because um, just next week after you'll hear this and in, in like five days after you hear this. Uh, tickets are going to go on sale for our fall tours in Alton, Illinois, uh, which is our closest tour to St. Louis, and in Decatur, Illinois, too, um, which is our oldest tour. That tour is 25 years old this year. And I've never so, done it. Yeah. So I need it to is, check it out. Uh, we, we, just, we just started running those um, just in October. So that is uh, just our fall thing, kind of how we used to do it when we first started. Mm -hmm. And um, we just do it in the fall. And uh, it's our original tour, and people really seem to uh, enjoy it. We get a lot of people who come back for that one year after year. Um, it's, I guess, one of the main reasons would be that it's our only tour that goes into an actual cemetery. Um, oh, okay. Greenwood Cemetery in Decatur, which is, you know, long had this reputation of being one of these most haunted places in Illinois. And we actually have access to the cemetery at night for the tour. And I think that's one of the big draws, kind of like with Alton, you know, we've got the Mineral Springs, we've got the First Unitarian Church and, you know, the Enos Sanatorium. We've got all these locations that have become kind of iconic. I'm going to say largely thanks to us yeah. over the years. And uh, we get a lot of people who come back year after year. And we're offering a lot of different things in Alton this year, um, from walking tours to bus tours to that dinner and ghost hunt experience. And then the Ghost of the River Road tours, which are a little, uh, by now, about half full for this year already. Um, but when the tickets go on sale, we'll probably blow those out the rest of the way. So we always try to get everybody, listen, if you want to come on one of these dinner tours, you really need to get some reservations now, especially ahead of time before the general public. So Right, yeah, and um, I didn't realize that, you know, I've gone on a couple of different ghost tours now um, outside of your company, and I didn't realize how spoiled I was because most of the time I, I was like, wait, I don't get to go inside know, this right? place? What's, I know, what's even I, we tell people that all the time, and people go, you only get to go into three places? You've got to be kidding, right? right? Because that's three places more than pretty much any other tours in the country. Yeah. I mean, I've been all over the country to different ghost tours, and we were just in New Orleans mm -hmm. for tours, and uh, you don't go in anywhere. No. Nope. Uh, there's a, a bar that's open that you can go in, but, I mean, these are major cities, you know, New Orleans, Savannah, San Francisco, all these places that have become known for having ghost tours, but none of them go in anywhere. Yeah. So um, that's, I think, one of the things that, that makes ours different. But And it's been that way since the beginning. So honestly, I, I don't know any other way. I mean, for 25 years, that's how we've been doing ghost tours. So, you know, yeah. I think that just makes it a lot more fun that way. No, I absolutely agree. Um, but we did have a great time in New we Orleans did. still. Yeah, we did. A lot of fun. Uh, and we have T-shirts now, by the way. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. We do have podcast T-shirts. Um, that's one of the things that we've been kind of toying back and forth with the last couple of years. Anybody who comes to any of our events always, you know, we'll have like the conference T-shirt every mm -hmm. year, but we've started doing some other shirts, too. So if you've been to some of the events, you've probably seen the shirts. But this is our, our very first podcast shirt. So if you go to the AmericanHauntings.net website, um, you can get through to the catalog there, and that has all of our stuff, including the new T-shirt uh, for the podcast. And, um, yeah, people have been buying those up, you know, kind of a support the podcast kind of thing. Believe me, it will be a unique shirt. Yeah. <laughs> There's not another one like it. <laughs> yeah, and we really appreciate it. And uh, I'll have a link to that in the show notes uh, Perfect. as well. Perfect. So, all right, well, before we get started with the rest of the show, let's take a quick break. If you're enjoying the show, remember that American Hauntings is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference. So if you're into haunted history, you're going to love everything that we do. And you can see it all at our website, AmericanHauntings.net. If you've been enjoying the St. Louis episodes of the podcast, you might also enjoy the new edition of my book, Haunted St. Louis, which lets you take kind of a deeper dive into these stories and a lot more. And coming on September 4th is the release of my brand new book, Suffer the Children, a collection of American horrors, homicides, and hauntings that all delve into Cody's favorite subject, ghost children. This book does come with a word of caution. I've been writing about some pretty disturbing stuff for most of my career, some brutal, agonizing, and terrifying scenes of horror. But this book, it's the worst so far. So it's not for the faint of heart or for those who are easily disturbed. So if you're bothered by really disturbing stories, this is not 
the book for you. Seriously, don't read it. And don't say I didn't warn you. Just remember, as an American Hauntings podcast listener, you always get 10% off your orders from the online store by using the promo code PODCAST when you're checking out. See the show notes for links to the store. Hey, you guys. Before we get started with this episode, we've got some exciting news to share with you. If you love the American Hauntings podcast, then this is your chance to be a part of it. During every episode, we mention that the podcast is just one part of American Hauntings, all of our books and our tours and our ghost hunts and events. And recently, we launched a brand new community on Patreon that gives you the chance to become an American Hauntings VIP. If you decide to do this, we've got tons of rewards. I get to send you all kinds of stuff in the mail, decals, buttons, shirts, all that good stuff. But we're going beyond that. So some of the reward levels include things like discounts from our online store, early access to events, private paranormal meetups at haunted places around the country, private ghost hunts, lectures, tours, even dinners just for our subscribers. We're also going to send you exclusive privately printed books by Troy Taylor, not available to the public. And since you're a VIP, you're going to have free access to some of our events, including the Haunted America Conference. We're also including bonus episodes of this podcast for subscribers only. So if you're one of those listeners who wishes the podcast was every week, this is your chance for new shows each week. Now, one of our goals is to try to upgrade the equipment that we use to produce the podcast. So as a listener, this is your chance to help us and to be a part of American Hauntings history. To get involved, just go to patreon.com slash American Hauntings or see the show info for the link. We hope to see you at one of our private subscriber events in the near future. To get involved, just go to patreon.com slash American Hauntings or just see the show info for the link. Now, on with the show. Okay, so let's talk about the Lamberts. Yeah, you know, this is um, this is one of those stories that um, I, I I wouldn't say I ran, ran across it by accident, but it was kind of one of those things that just sort of fell in my lap because, I mean, everybody recognizes the name. Mm-hmm. I mean, you and you, you will know Lambert because of the son who started the airfield that went on to become Lambert International Airport. But um, that's how most people recognize the name Lambert, but they also recognize what the company did. You know, Lambert Pharmacol is the ones who created Listerine. And while I don't think it's as popular as it was, say, in the, you know, in the middle of the 20th century kind of thing, and, you know, it's still around. I mean, it's still on every drugstore shelf in America, and a lot of people have a bottle of it at home and don't realize the connections to, I guess, the connections to the supernatural that sort of go along with it, and uh, most people don't. And what's what's cool about this story is is that this is a family that was just as wealthy as the limps, Mm -hmm. um, just as eccentric as the limps, um, and even more so into, I mean, the limps, except for Elsa, was never interested in ghosts or this, the supernatural or spiritualism or anything like that. But this is one of the sons and his wife who were really, really into the supernatural. And yet we've forgotten all about these people. Yeah. I mean, there's just, this is a story that most people don't know. And um, I think it's a story worth worth telling because it's a whole a whole other side to a family that is was one of the you know reigning families of St. Louis in the late 1800s early 1900s they were you know as high in society as you come and yet people don't realize their connections to the spirit world so to speak right i i was not familiar with the story at all uh, it's very interesting so we're going to be talking about uh lamberts in particular jordan wheat lambert and his wife helen Mm-hmm. And they had two children, uh, Jordan Jr. and then Baron. Are you allowed to have the name Baron if you're poor? Uh, I, I don't think wondering. so. I think they, I think it's one of those names that only comes to wealthy families. I'm, right. I'm pretty sure. And they – okay, so we, the way I read it is that they hired a psychic medium named Will Hannigan as a caregiver, but but they didn't Not know – Not originally, was, right. right. They didn't know that he was – and, you know, that's a, that's an interesting – he is an interesting character. Um, I've actually been in touch with – relatives of his with oh yeah. his um great nephew i believe 
Um, and he had has given me some information and some newspaper things and stuff um, in addition to the stuff I already had. But he's an interesting character because they had hired him to be he, he was a had trained as a nurse mm-hmm. and they hired him as a a manny, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what else to call right. it. Um, he was a he was supposed to be a caretaker for this little boy, and um, they didn't realize that he may or may not have i mean they believed he came to believe that he had psychic abilities Mm -hmm. and uh they found them out by accident and that so i mean a lot of this the stories that would come out later made it sound like they you know they were so into spiritualism that they hired this guy to you know this psychic to this medium to be their the boy's nurse but what really happened is they hired him to be a nurse and then suddenly you know along comes this incidents these incidents that begin to happen and when you get more into the family's history later on you find that um helen's mother believed that helen was in was suffering from you know we're going to translate it to for today was suffering from some some sort of postpartum depression Mm -hmm. after the birth of her second child after baron was born yeah and um then she became interested in spiritualism and and ghosts and psychic things and that which really not not out of the ordinary at the time that that stuff was really still in vogue uh from the 19th century and so she was really into the into this and then happens to hire this guy who suddenly becomes or at least his psychic gifts become known because never before at any time in his life had he ever been a psychic or a medium or anything like that it just kind of came about you know i mean there's lots of explanations you could give to this that you know maybe his energy came about because helen was so receptive to it because she was already interested she was already a member of the uh, aspr the american society for psychical research Mm -hmm. uh, which is the you know the the american branch of the british group i don't know if we talked about that back when we were talking about like pearl kern and things but i don't think the spr was the society of psychical research it was found in the 1870s in england and it was uh, a number of eminent scientists and later there were a number of authors and writers who became involved too and it was kind of an upper class ghost hunting society essentially um and they were investigating the mediums of the time Mm -hmm. well the aspr was a was a side branch of it founded by William James um who was a a um you know one of the leaders in you know psychiatry and that kind of thing philosophy and things like that in that time he was one of the founders of that in the United States and um James Hyslop who also had delved into he's delved into his name is going to come up in other episodes not all St. Louis related but as I I picture future episodes of the podcast we'll talk about him more but okay. he was a a pretty eminent scientist of the day, um, pretty well known, and was not afraid to put his name on research into the paranormal. Mm-hmm. Well, Helen had already joined the ASPR, so she was already familiar with him. So when he becomes a part of this story, when he comes to St. Louis to investigate the things that are, Helen was telling everyone were going on at her house, the majority of what happened in this, in this whole situation came through Helen. Uh, but her, as I said, her mother, you know, said that she'd already been having some depression. This was a diversion that she just kind of something, a hobby to look into that was out of the ordinary, but it was popular at the time. And, you know, we talked about that in in the story. I, I mentioned that, you know, people would come over to each other's houses. They'd bust out the Ouija board. Yeah. You know, these were things that were common parlor games at the time. It's not like you're going to, you know, get together and watch a movie or play Cards Against Humanity yeah. with your friends. You know, it's, it's, you know, these were fun things to do at the time. Let's tip some tables. Let's get the Ouija board out. Let's do tarot card readings. I mean, these were fun things that people did. And uh, so she had a real affinity for these kinds of things. So the fact that they now had a in-house medium, yeah. I'm sure, was exciting for her. And so when her friends would come over, it wasn't just, you know, you went to Helen's house and it wasn't just getting out the Ouija board anymore. Now you could have a full-blown seance because she had a medium on staff, Yeah, you know, who was also, you know, this kid's nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Well, well, I'm sure we'll get to that. I just started to say something, but I'm going to let you ask wait. your questions. Okay. We'll get to it. I've got we'll get burning to questions. Yeah. I actually, I yeah. had some friends over last night, and I was kind of telling them a little bit about the story, and I was like, 
And you guys suck. We come over here and we just we just drink. We don't bust <laughs> yeah. out the Ouija yeah, board. Yeah, we never have anything. a seance. I yeah. don't understand. Nothing yeah. fun. We just watch Netflix. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I, as I was reading about um, ASPR and the guys coming in, it seemed like they were – I think I would have been one of these people just that ruins the fun of all of this stuff because it seemed like it came in just to try and debunk stuff. Well, that... I mean they came in to do – you know, an examination, I mean, to, to really investigate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and the idea, even, even now, when you go in to do an investigation in someone's home that, you know, somebody calls them and says, oh, yeah, my house is haunted and here's what's happening. I mean, you go in with the idea that it's probably not haunted. Mm-hmm. There, 99% of the time, there's a natural explanation for most of the things that, that people say. Yeah. Um, in that time period, though, a lot of these investigators were going in with the idea uh, kind of backward that, oh, there are there must be something to this, so let's see what's going on. You know, if we've got this trusted member like Helen Lambert who says that these things are happening, we, we kind of have to take her at her word. So, you know, James Hyslop comes in to do this in- investigation and goes away leaving telling people that, you know, Will Hannigan is a, a super normal person that's able to achieve all these things. Mm-hmm. But, you know... Um, Later on in the story, there's going to be a lot more about some of the things that were said in our next episode. Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to be a lot more things about what was said by some of the newspaper reporters and, and people who came in and you know began debunking this story. But we haven't even gotten that far yet. So. Right. Yeah, no, I, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm kind of upset. I feel like there's a missed opportunity with ASPR. They should have just added something with a C. They could have called it Casper. Casper, yeah. Well, I don't think that would have been very appealing in 1904, you know, or 1908 or whenever, you know, that people would have been too appealed with Casper. So, well, just let me. Just let me have it. See, this was. I know. I'm. I'm letting you have it. But you're. You're. You know. You're picturing people with you know black t-shirts that are a size too small and you know and you know in a whole group there yes. with some tribal tattoos and there it's a ghost hunting team this wasn't a ghost not hunting like team. That. these were actual scientists and professors but you're saying so, the people i see on tv are not yeah, the, actual probably scientists? not actual scientists yeah we're gonna we're gonna i'm gonna tell you that's not the case uh, so. yeah. all right so hannigan that gets into the seances and table moving automatic writing those, right. those sorts of things and um, I mean, it it seems like some of the stuff you're talking about is kind of elaborate. Um, if it's if it's a hoax, it's an elaborate one. Uh, it's very interesting as far as the the were we talking about the white roses and yeah yeah that that you know the, some of the things that that supposedly happen and then you know that's what you know Helen I think was already convinced. I think she was convinced by some of the seances that were taking place at the house that we don't really have details of mm-hmm. because we we know they were happening, but nobody was reporting what was really going on in them. Now, in 1928, long after all of this stuff happened, um, Helen actually did publish a very lengthy paper with the ASPR, which has a lot of details in it that I hope to get to in the future. I, I'm really considering doing an entire book on just the Lambert story. Oh, wow. Later right. on, um, because there's enough material there to really delve into it. So if I do, I'll probably get into some more of that kind of stuff. But these seances that were taking place, we don't have a lot of details, um, but I think Helen was convinced by some of the things that happened. I think Jordan began leaning toward a belief in it after the burglar incident. Yeah. I think that was kind of what started him. That was even before the, the roses mm-hmm. thing that happened. Um, That's why I mean elaborate because if the, yeah, that was pretty real, elaborate, but there's a lot yeah, of detail. But it's also a, one of those things. And um, we'll talk about it more in the next episode, but you can actually, you can actually pick that story apart a little bit. Yeah. It wouldn't have been that hard to fake it, but where did he come up with it? If, if it was fake, I'm not mm-hmm. saying that it was, but if it was, where did he come up with some of these ideas? Because, you know, this is, they're, they're sitting down and they're having this automatic writing session and these messages are coming through saying somebody wants to break into the house and kidnap Helen and Junior, yeah. you know. Um, that's pretty elaborate. But on the other hand, what's the best way to work your worm your way into it let's say you're let's say instead of yeah whether it's job security or let's just say you're just a plain old grifter what's the best way to wean yourself into this family is by making yourself indispensable yeah well in in this case he did because now he's not only did he stop a burglary thanks to the ghost Mm -hmm. but he's also saved the the lives of the of the wife and and child so to jordan i'm sure this probably seemed you know in a in a I'm going to say somewhat more innocent time, this might have seemed like, 
you know, something really great. And he, he really won him over that way. And then, of course, there was the Roses incident, which Jordan couldn't explain. Yeah. Um, you know, with the Roses appearing. But, you know, I think the key things here, the, the telling factors of this part of the story are, you know, the ghost says, we've got to turn off all the lights. It's got to be pitch dark in here. Well, right. of, of course it does, because... That was one of the things that all of the scientists and the, especially the magicians that were investigating spiritualism in the early days were saying, you know, all these seances have to be in the dark. You know, so what's the best way to conceal fraud? Well, turn off the lights, yeah. you know, which was one of the things that made like people like um, Daniel Hume so famous. And why we're still talking about him after all these years is because, and we haven't, not yet anyway, on the podcast, but... Um, we're talking about a guy who was a medium in the in the late 1800s, and people still talk about him today because he performed every one of his seances in a brightly lit room. Yeah, and would make things happen. You know, um, it's it's that's hard to debunk. A room that's pitch dark, not so hard. Right. You know, and oh, it's these white roses, and you know, oh, it's been in such a cold spring, so I don't know how we could have possibly they couldn't <laughs> yeah. have possibly have grown. You know, well, that's what greenhouses were made for, and they had them in 1904, but. You know, whatever, you know, it's, um, it's, it's an interesting, it was an interesting thing. And and I think what the most important part of that story, I think, is that it, it did convince Jordan also that there was something really peculiar going on with this guy. I mean, right. he, he was the first one who saw something, but I, I don't think that him sitting in his office one night, you know, when he put his hands near the table and the table moved, I don't think Jordan Lambert, who was this guy who is... You know, it's this business guy that, well, okay, loosely, he's the, he's the Billy Limp of the Lamberts, yeah. let's be honest. He never wanted it. I mean, he never really wanted the job. And he never, he was the vice president, but he never really did anything his brothers and his cousins did. He, you know, he cruised around the world and played billiards. Right. I mean, you know, he was like this billiard. And that's what, you know, what's funny is if you do really do a hard search on him through a lot of old records and newspapers, you'll find a lot more stories about his billiard tournaments yeah. than you will anything to do with his business or anything. I bet. Uh, he had a lot of big ideas that never really amounted to much. And yet he had so much money that, you know, again, that he'd never spend all that money in 20 lifetimes. It's how much money they were making. And um, just like the limps, you know? Yeah. And so I don't think the first thing he thought of was, oh my gosh, this guy must be a psychic medium. He moved this table by itself. I, he probably mentioned it to Helen, knowing that she was interested in that kind of thing. Well, you know, something weird happened, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. I think it was more of a passing comment than it was anything to do with, you know, psychic energy. You know, it, it really wasn't until she started telling, Helen started telling Jordan about the, you know, the automatic writing session and the table that moved and, and that kind of thing during one of her seances at the house, you know, and then I think the burglar thing plus the roses, which, you know, was the, a, a message from a, the dead wife of a very good friend of theirs, you know, and I think he kind of felt like, well, you know, we pulled this out, you know, we just kind of pulled this out of our ass, you know, yeah. here, why don't you try and talk to this woman who's a, you know, the dead wife of a guy who doesn't even live here anymore, mm -hmm. you know, and thinking that, you know, this will put him on the spot. And I think that he saw those roses as confirmation. And why, I don't know, because really there was no detailed revelations coming in right. from the Spirit. But I think he saw that as confirmation that he really had reached this woman they wanted to reach. Because suddenly here were these roses. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't see anything in any any records or anything statement that said that she loved white roses right, yeah. or anything like that. It was just, here were these mysterious roses and they just couldn't imagine how they could have appeared. Um, I can give you about 32 different ways they could have appeared, yep. but I, you know, but here they were. And I think that for Jordan, that was a, that was a big deal. And, um, I don't know. I, you know, I, I, the thing about, you know, he, he made some statements and he told reporters, you know, I don't know how this happened, you know, but I'll, I'm going to vouch for this kid mm -hmm. is pretty much what he was doing. Um, and then Helen, I, I'm going to guess, spent so much time talking about him that everybody heard about Will Hannigan, mm -hmm. you know, um, mostly through her and from anybody who came to one of her parties. I mean, these were parties that were open to Joe Blow off the street. I mean, these were society people, you know, who visited with each other. And um, I, I always like to, I always wonder because of the time period, I always like to think, you know, it's 1908. What was Elsa doing? Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I always, and they, they were friends. Yeah. And so my guess is that 
even though we don't have any record of it, my guess is that she was probably at some of these seances, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but the newspapers probably would not have listed the names because, you know, these were the, these were the the betters. They were their betters. They're not going to list all their names. Um, And so you have a situation where you've got all of these people gathering and we only have Helen's version of events. Mm -hmm. That was, it was her stories and Jordan's stories that were being passed on to the press who were writing about Will Hannigan like crazy. I mean, it was in the newspapers all the time. Um, I mean, some of the stories ended up on the front page of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I mean, that's a big deal. You know, when you're talking about some guy nobody knows who claims to be a psychic medium. And then, of course, they did that newspaper interview. Right, which which we'll get more into. Nightmare. I could see, yeah, I could definitely see, you know, um, Elsa and her hanging out and then, like, Billy and Jordan just smoking cigars and yeah, exactly. shit, you know, exactly. and drinking brandy Why not? I'm sure they knew each other. I mean, they had to have. You yeah. know, they, um, they moved in all the same circles. Well, I mean, and there's so many parallels between the two oh, families yeah, that we absolutely. talked about. Um, yeah. It's And we'll get into some more of those later, uh, the yeah. next episode. It's actually yeah. very interesting. Um, when you talk about the White Roses being some kind of confirmation, uh, I have a buddy at work who's been doing a lot of sleight of hand stuff. Uh-huh. If I didn't know what was going on, he could have convinced right. me that he was a psychic right. or like this was supernatural because right. it's so convincing, you know, when you see that stuff. Uh, so I could see them kind of freaking out. I mean, I know it was the lights were off. And stuff, right. I mean, still. it wouldn't even be that hard to do is yeah. the thing. I mean, when you're talking about a room that's pitch dark. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't. Under the table. And it wasn't like, and which which will be pointed out later, it wasn't like they had him under any kind of controls. Um, which was one of the big, see, that's why this whole thing was so sloppy. And with the ASPR signing off on this, and uh, you have to know a little bit about the history of that organization too, Mm -hmm. to realize they were always, the American version of the SPR was always a mess. They were always fighting with with each other. They were always going battling back and forth and certain members would go off to investigate one person and another one would go off to investigate another and some would claim they were genuine and some wouldn't and so this whole thing is to me was always very sloppy because they had these seances that took place and I mean I know because I've done so much research I mean I did that book American Hauntings and that's Two-thirds of that book is about how all this stuff got started. Right. And so you you get into these investigations and and how it was done and the way that they would tie up the mediums, they would pin them into chairs so they couldn't move, so they couldn't produce any kinds of tricks, they couldn't, you know, come up with anything like that. Right. You know, like when Houdini, you know, the very famous in the early 20s when Houdini and Marjorie in Boston were going battling back and forth, you know, over whether or not she was a genuine medium or not. And I mean, he locked her in a wooden box where only her hands and her head could be stuck out so that there's no way that she could do any kinds of tricks. Well, nobody ever did anything like that to Will Hannigan. They just set him loose in a room and let him run amok with, you know, oh, I'm getting, you know, I'm getting readings from Joe Wentworth, you know, my spirit guy, yeah. Joe Wentworth, the pirate. Sorry. I got to oh, make I sure. Know, yeah. I didn't know he was he, a pirate. Was, oh, you got to make sure you mentioned that he was a pirate. Um, Joe Wentworth, the ghost who, you know, could do this, this, and this. And so even when James Hyslop came, there's no mention of his, in the investigations that he was ever controlled in any way, shape or form. They just sort of took his word for it. I mean, there were the stories about how his arm would grow 20 inches yeah. and things like that. I mean, this, but these were the kinds of things that were being promoted about what were called physical mediums at the time. Physical mediums were the ones that, that are unlike what we have today. You know, mm-hmm. when people go see a show and somebody will stand up there and do that whole mind reading act that every magician could do, but yeah. everybody believes that it's a psychic, you know, right. reading from the great beyond. But, um, Physical mediums were the ones who made things move around, made musical instruments play, made mm-hmm. white roses appear, yeah. you know, uh, puked up ectoplasm, that kind of thing, <laughs> okay. you know. Um, it, that's that's what a physical medium was. And so they would have to tie all these people up to keep them, you know, to, not to keep them from doing tricks, but to prove they weren't doing right, tricks. Right. And so then if nothing happened in seance after seance after seance and they're tied to a chair then you've got to think that probably at some point they were pulling a fast one on somebody Mm -hmm. but nobody ever did that with will hannigan and i i'm not completely clear why maybe maybe one of these days when i 
jump into this even deeper, I can find some reason why it wasn't done that way, but for whatever reason it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that a group of people with their martinis and everything or uh, Rob Roy's or whatever they were serving in right. 1908 are standing around the Jordan's, you know, probably his library or his, you know, their parlor and all the lights are out and this guy's running around like a, apparently according to the newspaper reporter, sounds like a little elf or something oh, running geez. around the room and leaves a couple of flowers on the table. I mean, I'm not saying he did. I'm just saying that, how do you prove he didn't? He I mean, did. you can't, you know, say that he didn't or someone else did. Or uh, to, to really, when you get into this even more is who was his greatest enabler? Yeah. Helen. Yeah. You know, so it, 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 she needed something to believe in. And I think, I wonder if she didn't, I mean, and that's, I'm not, you know, I'm throwing out accusations here, but I, and I don't necessarily mean that I'm not even saying that I know that I'm just wondering aloud if how much, how easy it would have been for her to help things along. Mm-hmm. Um, it gave her a purpose. It gave, well, I mean, you, again, you got to go back to the time period. It's 1908. Um, women don't even have the right to vote, you know? So, and most of the things that happened, um, you know, she would have these parties and things in her home. This gave her some, some status. Mm-hmm. I mean, that she would not have had it as anything other than Jordan Lambert's wife. Now, suddenly she's a woman that people from all over the country are coming to see because she's now an acknowledged expert on psychic phenomena in regards to what's going on in her home. Um, that's a big deal. I mean, it, it puts her in a big place. I'm not saying that she did it, but she could have, again, that's, it's just throwing it out there as a possibility. You know, I'm not saying for all I know, Will Hannigan was a real psychic medium, but I doubt it. Yeah. I doubt it. You should feel free to speculate wildly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Hannigan sits down with the reporter from the St. Louis post dispatch for his first interview. Right. And this guy doesn't like him. Right. Oh no, not at all. And it gets a little weird. Well, it was the first interview he'd actually ever done. Um, and I, and I kind of mentioned that earlier that, um, you know, all of the information that anybody had about this was from Helen. Yeah. Um, so she was the one or, or Jordan in passing, never in depth, but in passing would say, yeah, oh, you know, I've seen some weird things, but Helen's the one who's writing reports, inviting investigators from New York to come and study this guy. So she's really invested in this. And I think that she probably thought, I know how to I can build this guy up into something even bigger by letting him do this interview, never realizing what a complete flake this guy is. Yeah, big mistake. I mean, he he's a young guy. I mean, he's a kid, but still. So he picked I, up a book and began chewing, chewing on, on the, the corner. corner. And see, all of the the, the reporter kept kept picking at all these little things. Yeah. I mean, he he talk about how he. You know, he pranced into the room or scampered, something yeah, like yeah. that, and and how he had teeth like a girl's, and how he was very what effeminate, and I don't know. I I just think he was trying to really make him seem, you know, he, he's a moon faced young man that yeah. weighs two hundred pounds, and he's, you know, he, oh, he came into the room as diffidently as a debutante, and I thought, so in other words, he swished into the room, yeah. And flopped himself down into a chair and then acted like a squirrel. I mean, I, I he guess. just completely acts crazy. I mean, and, you know, when he asks him to, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. And so he picks up the biography that, <laughs> that James Hyslop wrote about him and reads it to the reporter <laughs> and says, yeah, that's all I know. I don't know anything. I don't know. I don't pretend to know anything. I don't know how any of this works. I don't know what I can do. I don't know when I started doing it. And it's like. What is the point of this interview? Yeah. And so, and I think this reporter was so, it just didn't like him mm-hmm. and wasn't convinced, didn't find him convincing. I think that was the big thing, um, is that he just found that this guy was just a complete nutcase who wasn't convincing at all. And he was going to do what he could to make him look like a fool. Mm-hmm. And he did. I mean, he did make him look like a fool, but even so, I mean, he even questioned, he was the first person to really kind of question what was going on with him uh, because he said, you know, according to his resume, so to speak, he went to this nurse's training school and he said that he worked in the hospital there for five years, but the school hadn't even started yet when he said he was working as a nurse. So he was the first, and he, he didn't even get into it very deep, but I think he was the first person to ask what's going on with this guy Yeah, because something's not right here. And, um, 
even so, when this story hit the streets, um, it was it still became a big story. And we'll, we'll talk about it in the next episode because the the weirder thing than all of the other stuff he'd done so far was the fact that he just completely vanished from the public eye after this interview. No one could ever find him. Um, you know, and as I said, we'll talk about that more next time. But that was a weird situation too. Suddenly, you had a guy who, you know, could have been a celebrity around town. But I, th- I wonder, and again, it's no way to know, but it makes you wonder if maybe he didn't want the public eye. Mm-hmm. Because if too many people started looking at what he was doing, they were going to figure out that he was conning these people. Right. That's what I've always wondered about this. And yep. apparently so did some of his family members. Well, I, so yeah. I'm kinda, I'll, I'll save that for next time. I'm then. curious if, you know, if it was that he was conning these people and was afraid he would get found out or if like – Maybe Helen just brought him in and gave him this story. It's like, here's what you're gonna do, and he's well, like, I, I turn the screws. I, it's too much pressure. Yeah, I, I can't may, do and this maybe lady. that that maybe that's the case too. It's hard to say because I mean, this is that was really the beginning of the end. That's when things yeah. started to fall apart. It seems really weird to me too. Like, um, you know, I'm, I don't know much about postpartum depression or anything like that, but it seems like this would be the sort of thing where if you like lose a child or something or something, yeah. Really, crazy tragic I just happen. think I just think it was something that could be easily embraced as a hobby that mm. wasn't controversial. Uh, okay. See, let's say she decided to become um let's say she's Elsa Lemp and decides to become a suffragette instead. Mm-hmm. Um Jordan would have not I mean, it. that was okay for Elsa. She was single. Right. Uh, that wasn't okay for a married woman whose husband would have told her, no, you're not going to do that. Right. I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of married women who were involved in the in the movement, but this is a case where she's a very prominent married woman, and this was a safe hobby for her. I'm sure he never thought it would go anywhere. Yeah. I'm, sh- I'm sure that Jordan never thought it would turn into what it did. Right. And earn them sense. the kind of notoriety in the city that, well... People don't remember it these days, although maybe we can remind them through this show, but people don't remember it these days. But at the time, I'm sure they were seen as pretty controversial because of their spiritualist views, at least by a lot of people. Not by everybody, but by a lot of people, I'm sure. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we had so we had a few listeners write in. Uh, they have questions about this and that. Uh, Mark wrote in and asked, uh, "Who does your book cover illustrations?" And I know they didn't name any specific books. And I know you have quite a few, um, but I'm guessing some of the most recent, probably ones. more recent ones. Yeah. Um, April Slaughter does. Uh, she does all of our book covers. Um, I know she does some other ones too. But as far as uh, American Hauntings books goes, uh, April does all of those. Awesome. And she has some really cool artwork and yeah, skulls. Yeah, she does stuff skulls and... And, and journals and all kinds of different kinds of artwork. But that's one of the things she started doing for us in uh, 2013, so about five years ago. So, awesome, awesome. She may have been before that, now that I think about it. But anyway, uh, she does all of our covers. Awesome. And then Linda asked if you have any spooky tales from Edwardsville or Glen Carbon areas specifically. Well, and we haven't gotten to that yet. Um, we're, we, we're not for sure what we're going to do exactly with the next season of the podcast yet. Uh, but I'm going to say at some point we're going to get into some other Illinois stories that are kind of spread out. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll definitely be touching on Edwardsville, especially when it comes to the Three Mile House. So actually, I do have some stories. Mm-hmm. Um, Three Mile House is in um, the Haunted Alton book. I included it in there, even though it was a little outside the Alton area, just a little bit. But it was just too good of a story not to include. Um, but yeah, so there, I do have some stories from the area. And I'm sure we'll be talking about some of that stuff uh, in future seasons. Awesome. As long as you all keep listening. That's all. So. Yeah, we've got to get those numbers up. Uh, Five-star <laughs> reviews only on iTunes. Okay, well, I think let's let's wrap this up because this story isn't over. Uh, we've still got more of the Lamberts for uh, at least one more episode. And um, we'll, uh, we'll talk more about what happened next in the story. So um, thank you guys for listening. Um, it is great to be back after our vacation. And uh, we hope that you... Uh, are enjoying this this new delve into haunted St. Louis, and um, don't forget to share the um, podcast with your friends. Uh, tell them about it if they don't know about it yet. Pass it on. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes if you haven't done that yet. I mean, even if you listen on any of the other things like Stitcher or St- SoundCloud or Spotify, um, go on to iTunes. You can do it on your computer. Leave us uh, leave us a review. 
uh, because the more people that see it, the further it gets out there, and uh, we'll just keep on making more and more episodes in the future. So again, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. The American Hauntings Podcast is a way to combine historic record, folklore, science and observation, and imagination to uncover more about America's most haunted places, including St. Louis, Missouri. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and help us take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes by searching for American Hauntings or by going to AmericanHauntingPodcast.com, where we also have some links to some of Troy's books, as well as information about his upcoming ghost tours, events, and haunted happenings. As for your host, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CodyBeckSTL or at CodyBeck.com. Find Troy on Instagram at TroyTaylorGram, on Facebook at the Troy Taylor Author Page, or at AmericanHauntings.net. This episode of the podcast was written by Troy Taylor and was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck.